welcome to The Well. Uh, my name is Ryan Gear. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, if you're new with us, we especially want to welcome you. And uh, if you'd like to let us know you're new, you can text the word WELCOME uh, to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Tell us about yourself. We'd love to know that you're here. And uh, thank you to everybody who's joining us today. I try to follow along on Facebook Live, and I can see who's with us live. And, and it just I miss everybody. And um, I miss seeing you in person. We had a great theolo- or pub theology this past Tuesday with 20-some people and different people from different states and so on. But I just miss seeing the familiar faces and, and getting to talk to you on a Sunday morning. Um, we're meeting online like this for the foreseeable future until it's safe to meet together. But I want to welcome you this morning and thanks for being with us. And uh, welcome to another weekly installment of the completely insane year of our Lord 2020, right? There was an earthquake in North Carolina. So 2020 is, is staying on brand so far. And because of that, um, we are all facing or feeling anxiety levels that are much higher than normal. The Census Bureau found uh, just about a month ago or less that about 35% of Americans are reporting anxiety levels that could be diagnosed as generalized anxiety disorder. And that's double what it was five or six years ago. And it's up by five percentage points since January. So uh, all of us are feeling heightened anxiety uh, during the year 2020. And so if you're feeling that way, you're not alone. And so in this series, we're talking about dealing with anxiety, reducing the anxiety that we all feel on a personal level. And then also every week, we're, we're talking about how we can address the root causes of the anxiety that we feel in our culture. So uh, the series is called Distressed, Living in an Age of American Anxiety. And today we're talking about financial anxiety. So uh, just to give you the schedule, last week we started with political anxiety. If you missed that, you can go to wellchurch.org and, and listen to that sermon or watch it on our YouTube channel. Today we're talking about financial anxiety. Next week we're talking about COVID-19 anxiety, probably the most pressing immediate anxiety that we feel right now uh, connected to coronavirus. And then April 23rd, we're talking about relationship anxiety in general. And then April 30th, anxiety about the future just being worried about the future in general. So thanks for being here. I want to invite you back every week. And uh, today we're talking about financial anxiety. At least one person in the well has been laid off every week for the past month. And that's due to coronavirus. Uh, Our economy has taken a downturn. Um, Our GDP in the second quarter was down 32.9%. That's the greatest drop in American history. Uh, Last week, there were over a million unemployment claims and and the COVID-19 quote unquote enhanced unemployment was just cut. Um, And so uh, in addition, the eviction moratorium just expired. We don't know what the next few months will bring economically in the United States as we feel the effects of of COVID-19 on our economy but there are a lot of people who are hurting. There, there are folks watching right now who have lost jobs. There are folks watching right now who are wondering if they're going to lose a job. So financial anxiety is definitely a part of the anxiety that, that most of us feel right now. And, and I know that I'm talking to people in different places in life today. 
Some of you are on a fixed income, you're already retired. Some of you are doing well. And financial anxiety isn't really something that you feel. We, we have something for you today. So I encourage you, encourage you to keep watching. Uh, others, you know, you're just getting started in life and, and you're making decisions that are, that are going to affect the rest of your life financially. Some of you are in, in the middle of your life right now, kind of like me, and you're, you're looking around and thinking, man, I need to do more to prepare. Like, we're in a different place than we were a generation ago in, in the United States, and, and we need to just kind of you know, get in the game here and, and make wise financial decisions for the rest of our lives and, and for our children's future. So we also know that America has changed over the past generation and the way that we make a living and uh, how, how well we can do financially in life uh, is different than it used to be. So we refer to, to Hannah's, my wife Hannah's maternal grandparents as Gramps and Granny. Granny passed away about a year and a half ago and, and Gramps is holding his own. Um, my memories of, of going to their house uh, just a few years ago um, for Thanksgiving are, you know, the, the Gramps and Granny would lay out this big spread of a Thanksgiving meal and, and, uh, and then after, after dinner, Granny would come up to me and say, make sure you eat. And I was like, Granny, I've already had like three helpings. I don't need any help. I don't need any encouragement when it comes to eating. And they were just great hosts and, and um, having family over was, was the most important thing in their lives. And, Gramps and Granny's experience of America was that uh, Gramps went to basic training during the Korean War. He didn't actually have to go fight, but he went to basic training and, and he proposed to Granny from basic training over the phone. And he wanted to make sure that he, you know, he took care of his business and he had his ducks in a row if he had to go fight. And then after, uh, after the war, uh, Gramps got a job at Goodyear. Uh, the, the tire manufacturing company in Akron, Ohio, and he started at the very bottom and he worked at Goodyear his entire career. He just moved his way up through Goodyear and his job was enough that they only needed one income in the family. So Granny didn't have to, to go work outside the home. They raised two daughters together and they had a great life and he, uh, Gramps retired in his 50s. And he was able to have a pension and, and then go see his, his grandkids' games and, and graduations. And he gardened and, and Gramps and Granny had a great life. And we know that Gramps and Granny's story is rare in America today. How many of us expect to have one job, to work at one company throughout our entire lives? How many of us expect to have a pension and be able to retire when we're 50 years old? And, and or only live on one income and be able to raise a family on one income. America has changed over the past generation. That's not the country that we live in anymore. And that certainly plays a major role in our financial anxiety. So today we're talking about two things. We're talking about what we can do personally to reduce our financial anxiety. And then secondly, we're going to talk about addressing the root causes of most people's financial anxiety. So, so first of all, our, our personal financial anxiety. Let's be honest, Americans are usually quiet about our financial struggles. If I put a Facebook post on about, about struggling financially, it'll get like one like or one comment because 
we just don't want to admit that. We don't want to admit that we have financial anxiety. Part of the, the ethos of America is we're all supposed to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and, and, and have no financial problems and we're all doing great and we're all like millionaires and, and we're just living the American dream and we never struggle. And if you struggle financially, there's, there's shame attached to that. It's like you've done something wrong. You're not working hard enough. And we all feel that. So it's difficult for us to even admit, sometimes even to admit to ourselves that we're struggling financially. Now again, maybe you're not in that place right now. Maybe you're not feeling financial anxiety. There's something in this message for you. Just hold on. But if you're feeling financial anxiety, you probably feel alone because you don't realize how much other people are struggling financially. We live in this, in this Instagram culture where we put the best of ourselves out there and, and, and everything's great and beautiful and, and, and prosperous and we don't have any problems. And then we all believe each other's press. We all see the posts that we, that we make and, and we think that like we're the only ones who are struggling because everybody else looks like they're doing so great. And the truth is most of us are struggling. We just live in a culture where it's very difficult to admit that. So you're not alone. But there are other folks who really are struggling financially and they don't know it. Some of you right now, if I asked you, you know, do you have financial anxiety? You'd be like, no, we're doing okay. And, and you think you're doing okay because at the end of the month, your bills are paid. At the end of the month, you can make ends meet. But I want to ask you some questions because most Americans are struggling financially, even if they don't really know it. So first of all, I want to ask, how's your savings? If you lost your job because of COVID-19, how many months could you make it? without having to live on a credit card? Do you have an emergency fund that could last you a month or three months or, or six months? How are your savings? Depending on the survey, somewhere between 50% and 75% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Half of Americans have no savings at all. Schwab says 60% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 40% of us have credit card debt and 18% of people making over $100,000 a year live paycheck to paycheck. A Go Banking Rate survey found that 70% of Americans have less than $1,000 in savings. So if you were to lose your job, usually it takes a few months to find a new job. If, if you can't make it a few months on your savings, you're not really making it financially. See, we can fool each other. And by the, the possessions that we have, the cars we drive, the houses we live in, we can think we're making it. We can even fool ourselves. But without savings, we're not really making it. A second question, how's your retirement? Now, some of you are thinking, Ryan, I wasn't feeling financial anxiety before I started watching this, but now I am, thanks. Well, without savings and without an adequate retirement, we can't really say that we're making it financially. The truth is you're going to want to retire someday. And this is the, really the first generation of Americans in a long time that are going to get to retirement with a different experience than gramps and grannies. We're not, 
most of us are not going to have that pension activated in our 50s to be able to retire comfortably. So some of us now are, are going to realize 20 years and 30 years from now that we weren't making it financially because we didn't prepare. And then lastly, as a pastor, I have to ask, how's your giving? I have a day job. My wife and I both work you know, outside of the church. We're not dependent on the church for our living. And so I feel like I have a little bit more freedom to ask this. How's your giving? Are you able to give to things that you care about? We talked last week about giving to political causes that you support. Are you able to give to that? If there's a disaster, are you able to give to the American Red Cross? You know, I know that there are a lot of people who would like to give, who would like to support what they believe in, but they can't because they don't have any money. And I've been there. I know what that feels like. And so, you know, these questions aren't meant to be guilt producing at all. There's plenty of that to go around. We already have that probably. And, and I'm not trying to, to create more anxiety. There are just some of us who, who think we're making it and we're really not. So how's your savings? How's your retirement? How is your giving? So I want to read a scripture this morning that is familiar. to If you've been around church for any amount of time, you've probably heard the scripture. It's one of the most comforting scriptures you could read. Um, and today we're going to read this familiar scripture, but we're going to talk about it in a way that maybe is different than what you've heard before. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus teaching his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. This is like the core teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Like what are, what are real Christian values? There's a lot of talk about Christian values in America. Well, if, if you want to find real Christian values, values that are based on Christ, you would read the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Let's read it together. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or soar away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass, the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, people who don't know God, run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now watch verse 33. But seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So you could read this passage and, and you could find it to be extremely comforting, like God cares for me. And, and if, I, if I trust God, if I do the right things, God will provide for me. And, and so it could be comforting if you read the passage that way. There are some people who read the passage and, and they read Jesus saying, don't worry about things. And they're like, well, that sounds easy. 
well, I mean, Jesus, are you aware of the situation that I'm in right now? Like, you know, Jesus, do you see my, my lack of a savings account? And so, you know, the passage can be comforting or it can be kind of like, you know, depending on how you read it. But like I said, we're, we're going to talk about this passage today in a way that maybe you haven't heard before. So first of all, um, I have a friend who says, I don't worry about money because I worry about money. What he means by that is, I don't feel anxiety about money because I manage my money well. So part of the passage, when Jesus says, don't worry about money, there is a sense that um, we can become so entrenched in materialism and chasing after clothes and food. Of course, you need food, but Jesus is talking about you know, all the trappings of life that we chase after, we run after those things. And we can become so about those things that we get caught up in this anxiety that has more to do, uh, that, that, that means more than just money. It has to do with our self-image. It has to do with our feelings of worth. It has to do with our reputation. It has to do with how we want other people to see us, our image management. And Jesus says, you can fall into worry and anxiety about money because you're focused on you know, materialism, looking good, keeping up with the people, with the people next door. And so one of the things that Jesus says here is that you and I are created for more than financial anxiety. He says, isn't life more than clothes? We're created for a different kind of, a higher way of life than just being in this hamster wheel, this rat race of always just trying to make more money and, and get the next promotion and buy a bigger house and, and buy more expensive cars and, and just always living in you know, this Instagram culture and just trying to impress people and impress ourselves even. Maybe for you, it's not even about what other people think of you. Maybe it's about what you think of you. And you just have these, these markers, these signs of success. And you figure, if I just have this, if I just have that, that means I've made it. And it's like my reward for working so hard if I buy this thing. Well, Jesus says there's more to life than that. You were made for more than living in that kind of an Instagram rat race culture. So Jesus says we're made for more than financial anxiety. I shared my story once before a few months ago, um, just in the past few years, how I have, uh, I have realized more than I ever have in my life what financial anxiety means. Um, back in 2016, my income was cut by two-thirds. So in 2017... I made one third of the income that I made in 2016. And I have the therapy bills to prove it. I lost two thirds of my income. And like most Americans, you know, I suffered in silence. I didn't talk about you know, our financial struggles. My wife held down the fort. She, she kept you know, her income stable the entire time. And, and even with our two little boys. And so um, I love and respect my wife. Um, but our childcare for our youngest son, it cost an enormous amount of money. And, and if, if you, you just know the struggles that, that Americans face and we couldn't keep going further into debt. And so I had a full-time day job and then I had to pick up a side hustle. I started a business and, and there were months where you know, our two incomes together from our jobs and then that side hustle 
is what kept us in our home. We wouldn't have made it without that. And over time, that just, that just grinds you down. That kind of financial stress, it, it, not only does it elevate your anxiety level, but part of what Jesus is getting at in this passage is we look at money as more than just money. It starts to eat away at your sense of who you are and your sense of security, your, your sense of, of um, survival even, to the point that if you're struggling financially over a long period of time, it can cause you to feel hopeless. It can cause you to feel trapped. And in the world, you just don't see the beauty of nature anymore. The birds and the grass, the flowers that Jesus is talking about. You just don't see that anymore because all you see is anxiety and this, this lack of money that causes you to even question whether life is worth it or not. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So I, you know, I want to share openly um, about, about my own life and, and my experiences and my hope is when I do that, that there are people who would say, yeah, that's me too. So there were times in 2017 and I worked in a, my day job was in a high rise office building and there was a balcony on the eighth floor and you could go out there and eat lunch. And, and um, there were days in 2017 where I purposefully did not go out on the balcony. Because there were days that I just felt so low that I didn't trust myself walking out on a balcony. Some of you may, able, may be able to identify with what I'm talking about. Maybe you were there in the past and you're not there anymore. Maybe you're there right now. One of the things that Jesus is saying in this passage is that if you feel like you're trapped, you're hopeless, you're not worth anything because of financial anxiety. Friend, you are more than your money and your life has value far beyond finances. You are worth more than money and you were created for more than living in financial anxiety crushed by the weight of debt and financial anxiety in your life and feelings of hopelessness or, or worthlessness or feeling like you're not a good enough provider or, or feeling like you're not a good enough American and all the things that we tell ourselves when, when you feel like you can't pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps, like you are worth more than that. Is, li is not life worth more than clothes? You were created for more than that. So if we talked about the steps that you could take to reduce the, the personal financial anxiety that you feel, most of us could probably rattle off these steps. Well, you want to reduce your spending <laughs> or earn more money, start a side business, start a side hustle like I did. And, and let's just be honest, most middle-class Americans, here, here's how we overspend. We buy too much house, too much car, and we eat out too much. Those are the things that get most middle-class Americans. We go house shopping and, and we think, oh, that could, we see the house that we could afford. And then there's this house that we can't really afford. And that's the one we go for. And we become house poor. 
or we just spend so much on car leases or, or buying a car, you know, that, that monthly car payment or two monthly car payments that we're just strapped at the end of the month. And then of course we're busy and stressed out and you don't feel like cooking. Let's just order food. Let's just eat out. Let's just get takeout. Even during COVID, let's just go pick something up. And we just spend so much money on houses, cars, and, and eating out. That's what gets most of us. So if you want to reduce your spending, those are probably the first three areas to look. Or you can you know, start a side business or go back to school. Or there's, a, there's a way that you could increase your income. And if you think, I, mean, I don't have the, the skills. First of all, I bet you do have more than what you think you do. But maybe it is picking up a new skill or a, a, new, you know, a new preparation for, for, for career. Whatever that might look like, you can reduce spending or uh, increase your income. And then save for some kind of an emergency fund. Uh, depending on, you know, there's Dave Ramsey and there are different thoughts about him or Susie Orman or, or just talking to a financial advisor in your community. There are different amounts of money they might say to save, you know, while you're paying off debt. If you have debt, save this amount, at least just to, to keep you from living on a credit card if something happens, but saving for an emergency fund and then paying off debt. There's the debt snowball where you, where you start with this debt and you pay that off and then you put that, all of that amount that you were paying on that debt on the next debt and you just snowball until you can, you can pay, pay off your debt. And then funding your retirement, making sure that, that you're preparing for your future and then building wealth and living generously. You know, if I said, hey, how do, you, how do you reduce financial anxiety in your life? Most of you would be able to rattle off that list. The issue is probably motivation. That that's just different than the way that most people live now in America. We live in this Instagram culture where we're all pretending that, that we have it all together and we don't have any financial struggles and we're fooling each other. We, we, we're we're uh, presenting an image to the world that is not true. And, and we believe each other's uh, publicity. And so the truth is, and as a pastor, I, I know this is true. Most people struggle financially. Most people have financial anxiety because we spend too much in a house, too much on cars, and we eat out too much. And so if that's you, maybe it's just realizing the truth of that, that we're created for more than that, that could motivate you to address the personal causes of finan uh, financial anxiety in your life. It's even more important that we address those personal causes of financial anxiety. Because the truth is, like we said earlier, our experience of America right now is not Gramps and Granny's experience of America. No matter how much people think it's political talk and how, how many people want to argue against this for some reason, even though they are hurt by this reality too, there are people who, who you know, vote and talk against their own economic self-interest when it comes to this issue. It's just part of the, the, the divided, politically charged, culture war atmosphere that we live in. It is harder for Americans now to get ahead than it was a generation or two ago. It's harder for us to get ahead financially than it was for Gramps and Granny. That, that working in one company for all your life and being able to support your family on one income and retire in your 50s with a pension, that America is gone for the vast majority of people now. It's just harder to get ahead now. That's true. And so as we talk about re reducing financial anxiety, 
we have our own personal steps we can take. But now, the harder conversation might be that there are steps that, we, that all of us can take as a people to address the root causes of our financial anxiety. So I gave a sermon this past uh, January called We Have Issues, or a sermon series actually called We Have Issues 2020, and talked about you know, some of the most pressing issues that we're facing as a country. And, and one of those was on wealth inequality and income inequality. I'm not going to rehash all that here. You could go to wellchurch.org and you could go back and, and listen to that, to that sermon. But um, because of tax laws and because of wage stagnation and the rise in, in CEO pay and the rising cost of healthcare, the rising cost of college, the, the rise of debt marketing, the business of getting people in debt and keeping them in debt, wealth inequality is the largest it's been since right before the Great Depression. I'm going to repeat that. Right now in the United States, wealth inequality is the largest it's been since right before the Great Depression. This past April, um, April 10th, 2020, um, the New York Times published a study um, with this title, America Will Struggle After Coronavirus. These charts show why. And so I just want to take a minute and break down the root causes of of the financial anxiety that many of us feel. So first of all, you're not going to be able to see the print here, obviously, but you can see the black line on the screen. You can see the direction. You can see the trend of the black lines on the screen. So first of all, this is the gross domestic product of the United States starting in 1980 to now. the gross domestic product, all of the, the, um, the product we create <laughs> has increased by 79% since 1980. So as, as a people, we have been very productive and this is adjusted for inflation and population growth. So our GDP has increased by 79% since 1980. Over that same period, however, the after-tax income of the bottom half of American earners has only risen 20%. So we've become much more productive. Our productivity is increasing, but the actual after-tax income of the bottom earners in America has only risen by 20%. Now watch this. The after-tax income of earners near the middle, you see that middle line, has badly trailed our gross domestic product, rising only 50%. So all of Americans are, all of us, our GDP has risen by 79%. If you're in the middle class, your income has only risen by 50%. You can see the clear trend. Now watch. This is the income change among the wealthiest Americans. It crushes the three lines that we looked at previously. That top line right there, that's our, that's our gross domestic product as a country. And then the middle class and then the bottom earners were crushed 
by the, by the gain in wealth of the top earners that has risen by 420% since 1980. For the reasons that we listed before, one of them, in addition, is the rise in inequality between the pay of CEOs and the people who work for them. That's a clear trend. And then here's what that means in dollars for most Americans. If you are in the bottom 90% of Americans, if you're not in the top 10%, which means um, making a, a yearly salary or yearly income of about 150 dollars or $160,000, you individually, if you make less than one hundred and fifty dollars to $160,000 a year, you're in the bottom 90% of Americans. If that's you, what these charts mean is that if we were living in 1980, by, by 1980 standards of inequality, you would make an additional $12,000 per year than you do now in the current uh, situation of, of inequality. Just since 2011, that means that you have lost $114,250 just since 2011 than if you would have lived in 1980 as a, as a bottom 90% earner in the United States. That growth in inequality over time cost you about $12,000 a year. Could you use an extra 12 grand a year? Since 2011, could you have used an extra 114 grand? So for most Americans, this is the reality of the situation, that our growing inequality has produced. These are the, the federal income tax rates by income group. This is 1960. And these are the wealthiest Americans at the top. And you can see the clear trend here that the federal income tax rate for the wealthiest Americans has clearly declined over time. Now, am I just wanting a class war? Is this just, you know, some political opinion? Well, I like numbers. I like living in a factual reality-based world. And these are the numbers we see that paint a clear picture of why so many of us feel financial anxiety. Of course, there are personal steps we need to take. We, we need to stop, you know, um, projecting this image that none of us struggle financially and then we're all like in competition with each other and finally realize, no, most of us are struggling actually. And we can just kind of set each other free. And, and yes, we can fall into greed and the temptation of materialism and just spend too much on stuff we don't need. And we need to take those steps to reduce our spending and save and, and save for retirement and give generously and be generous people. We need to do all those things personally. But if we don't address the big picture, then of course, we're not really dealing with the root causes of our financial anxiety. So, which brings us back to Matthew chapter six and this teaching of Jesus and, and, and that, that verse that's kind of the heart of what Jesus has to say about not worrying about money. And in Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, but seek first 
God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all these things that, we, that we're anxious about and that we chase after will be given to you as well. So I'm talking to smart people right now. I'm talking to thinking Christians, people who want to follow Jesus, and you're thinking people, you're intelligent people. And when you read a passage like this, it sounds like magic. So, so Jesus, are you saying that if I'm a good person, if I live a righteous life, that God will just magically provide whatever I need, that I won't have to, I won't have to worry about my financial life. I won't have to have any financial anxiety because God will just like poof, magically provide for me and, and I'll just have what I need. And man, that's easy. Psh, great. I'll just stop worrying. Is, is that the teaching here? Is Jesus just teaching magic? That's not what Jesus is teaching. That's a common interpretation. And if you grew up in church, that's probably the way you've heard this passage taught before. That if I'm just a good person, that God will just like poof, magically provide for my needs. That's not the teaching of Jesus here. Share a couple of reasons why. First of all, we need to define our terms. When Jesus talks about God's kingdom and, and God's righteousness, what does that mean? First of all, just real quick, God's kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It's not a country. It's not a political party. It doesn't mean like setting up laws where it's like a theocracy and we all just abide by, you know, like whatever, the, you know, whatever our interpretation of the Bible is. That's not what God's kingdom means. God, God's kingdom means God's leadership, God's authority. Um, God's reign, um, God's empire in the time of the Roman Empire. It means allowing God to guide your life. God's kingdom is you choosing to let God guide your life, to let good guide your life. That's what God's kingdom means, to let God guide you, how you view money, how you view life in general. That's what it means to live in God's kingdom. And then this word righteousness it's so misunderstood in American Christianity. See, most of us have been taught that righteousness means personal piety. It means don't cuss, don't drink, don't chew, and don't date the girls who do. It means not watching R-rated movies. When, when I was a teenager, it meant don't watch MTV because, you know, Britney's wearing a tank top. And, and God wants us to be righteous, and so don't watch a music video where Britney's wearing a tank top. And that's what righteousness was. It was defined as personal piety, personal, um, just being, you know, personal morals of being a good little boy, a good little girl. And of course, that, that has roots in, in Southern American Christianity where, where all of the Bible is about personal piety because, we, because if we talk about the social realities that we're living in, we would have to admit that we own slaves. And so that's part of the slave master gospel, that, that Jesus and, and following Jesus and righteousness is just about my own personal life, not about the social realities that we live in. Yeah, that's not what righteousness means. Righteousness comes from a Hebrew word, tzedakah, tzedakah, like the T and the Z are together at the beginning of the word, tzedakah. And it actually could be translated as two English words, justice and righteousness. 
and it's really simple to understand, actually, even, even from our English word. Righteousness means doing what is right by everybody. Righteousness means doing what's right. What is right for everybody. It means doing our best to order society in such a way that everybody has a fair shot. That it's just. That it's fair. That it's right for everybody. It means caring how other people are doing. The, the modern um, Hebrew understanding for our Jewish friends of tzedakah is charitable giving. That when I see people in need, I give out of my, my wealth, whatever I have, or even if I feel like it's a lack of wealth, I, whatever I have, I share it. I'm willing to share it with other people because I care. I want the world to be more right more righteous, more just, more fair. And so I share what I have. I have a mentality that I want to do what's right by everybody. I don't want to, I don't want to hoard and feel like I'm doing great. I don't have any financial anxiety. Why is Ryan even talking about this? I'm doing fine. Well, while most people in our society suffer because we have a disordered society, the greatest disorder we've had since right before the Great Depression. So God's kingdom means I want to follow God's leadership for my life and and God's righteousness means I want to do what's right by everybody. And there's more. It's absolutely vital that we understand this. And this is true for most of the Bible. When we read the scripture, we tend to read the scripture as individualistic Americans. And when the Bible says you, like when Jesus says, you know, given to you, we think that Jesus is talking to us individually. Like you individual American seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. That's not, that's not how the Bible usually uses the word you. New Testament was originally written in Greek. Um, you conjugate verbs in Greek. So the verb for seek is a, it's a second person plural verb, which is you all. So Jesus isn't saying you individual American seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And then you individual American will get all the stuff you need. Poof, magic. That's not the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is teaching here, you all, y'all, all of you together, all of you followers of mine together, all of you Americans together, you as a group, you all, y'all, seek God's kingdom. Live your lives according to what is good. Let goodness be your guide and seek God's righteousness, doing what is right by everybody, what's just, what's fair, what's equitable. If all of you, y'all decide together that this is the way you want to live, you want to follow God, you want to do what's right by everybody, then all these things you chase they'll be given to you as well. Your needs will be met. It's not magic. It's, it's the direct 
logical result of a group of people deciding together, we want to live in a way that is good and right and just and fair. And when we, when we decide that, financial anxiety subsides because our ha- we have our needs met. Because we've all decided, y'all have decided that we want to live that way. That's the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. That's why Jesus can say, don't worry about those things. Because y'all can decide together that this is how you want to live. And we realize that God cares for us. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things, that God cares for us but that God also cares through us. We can become the answer to our own prayers. And we can decide to create a society that is just and fair and righteous. That's what the teaching of Jesus means. We can get there. It is completely within our power to make that decision. In the, in the Gilded Age of the late 1800s and, and early 20th century, when wealth inequality and anxiety were growing the way that they are now, a pastor and professor named Walter Rauschenbusch woke up the American church with a book that, that birthed the era of what was called the social gospel. The book was called Christianity and the Social Crisis. And uh, this was written, I believe, in 1907. 1907. And it was Walter Rauschenbusch's response to this pervasive Christianity in America. It was like slaveholder Christianity, where Christianity is all about you know, my own personal righteousness and personal holiness and personal piety, and we just ignore social problems. Or like the, the mentality of kind of the country club church, where you had people that were you know, professional people that had done well in life, and they were apathetic toward the needs in their society, the needs that most people felt, the anxiety most people felt. And, and Rauschenbusch just shook everybody awake and launched this movement referred to as the social gospel. And it was based on verses that most of us know, like Micah 6, 8. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good, righteous, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, righteously, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And there were so many leaders, there were, there were so many women in that period of history, in that period of America, in the women's suffrage movement, and, and, uh, who, who fought for equality, and also financial equity, and, and social justice in the early 20th century. We're living in a time of growing inequality that is like that time. We're back where we were a hundred years ago. And perhaps God is calling through the teaching of Jesus to people who really do want to follow Jesus. Not like this hijacked political culture war, fake Jesus that we hear so much, you know, that so many Christians talk about. Maybe God is calling people right now to follow the Jesus who gave the Sermon on the Mount. And even if you're doing great and you don't feel any financial anxiety, maybe God is calling to you and saying, listen, we, I haven't called you to be apathetic in your wealth. 
I've called you to something more than that. I've called you to something more than comfort. Yes, I've called people to more than, than chasing, running after wealth, but maybe you've already done that and now you can just kind of rest easy, but I've called you to more than just taking it easy while most of society suffers. And maybe it's time for another movement in our country towards God's kingdom and God's righteousness. So if you are feeling financial anxiety right now, if maybe you've lost a job and, and, and it's, it's keeping you up at night, I hope not. But I may be talking to somebody right now who felt like I did in 2017. And you're just questioning everything. And you're tempted to feel hopeless and trapped. And you're not sure there's a future for you. You're not sure what you're worth anymore. I, w I want to tell you as somebody who has been there, that you are worth far more than you think. You have no idea what you're worth, what your value is. Why? The teaching of Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows, already knows that you need these things. And how much more does God want to provide those things for you? than you realize. God cares for you. And to all of us, God cares through us. You don't realize your own value. So a couple of weeks ago, just randomly, I, uh, I remember back um, to this snare drum I used to play. Like uh, my boys play music. I have two little boys who are little talented musicians and, and we have like music nights especially during the, during the shutdown, and maybe it was that, and it just kind of reminded me of this, um, this snare drum that I played when I was in the school band uh, uh, from fourth grade to eighth grade. So um, I had the awesome opportunity in my elementary school to, to start in, in a school band in the fourth grade, and I played in the, in the school band up through uh, eighth grade, and I played snare drum. And... Uh, um, in an elementary school, I was the only one, and then once we got to junior high, like there were a couple other drummers uh, in the band and, and I loved playing. I was always first chair, actually. Like I never lost first chair. I loved to play. But playing that snare drum also involved some pain for me, some, some financial anxiety. Because when, uh, when I was in fourth grade and I started playing, you know, our family didn't have a lot of money. And my parents went out and they found a used snare drum for me. Probably bought it at a yard sale, I don't remember. Now, first of all, they cared about me enough to resource me the best they could. So I'm thankful to them for that. We just didn't have a lot of money to drop on a, on a snare drum. And, and I was embarrassed of the snare drum because it didn't look like the typical school band snare drum. It's like kind of the metal shiny outside around it and and um, my snare drum that they picked up, you know, probably at a yard sale, had like this, this silver glitter finish around the outside of it. And, and the case was all beaten up and the foam inside of it was torn up and somebody had broken the handle off. And so they made a makeshift handle for me that kind of stuck out. And, and I was embarrassed of this snare drum and the case. And when we would go to band, 
like I would kind of hide behind this row of chairs and take my drum out of the case and, and just so people wouldn't see how kind of ratty it was. I love to play, but I was always you know, embarrassed of this snare drum. So a couple of weeks ago, again, randomly probably seeing my sons play, I just thought of that snare drum. I'm like, I wonder, I wonder if I could find that snare drum online because I don't, I don't know what happened to it. I wonder if I could find that drum I played online. Um, so I, I just, you know, Googled it and um, my drum said Ludwig on the outside of it. And I had no idea what Ludwig was, you know, a drum manufacturer. Um, I didn't know at the time in fourth grade, like about, you know, rock bands like Led Zeppelin or I didn't know any of that. And so I looked up this Ludwig drum with the, the silver glittery finish on the outside. And I, I found a, a snare drum that was like the one I played. And it turns out that it was from a kit. Uh, it was parted out from a drum kit. And it was a kit that was created in the 1970s as a replica of a kit that was played by John Bonham, who was the drummer for Led Zeppelin. He's the, he's the best drummer in rock history. And Ludwig is a famous drum manufacturer. Ringo Starr played Ludwig's. Um, John Bonham, obviously, the drummer from The Who, Keith Moon for a while. Um, maybe Sabbath, Van Halen, like today, like the Strokes or the Black Keys. And I mean, tons, tons of great drummers played Ludwig. And, and, and then I actually found my snare drum on eBay, like not the exact one, I'm sure, but could be, but a drum like it on eBay. Would you like to know how much that drum I was embarrassed of costs right now on eBay? Hopefully you can see it, but you can buy a snare drum like the one I was embarrassed of uh, for 730 bucks plus $200 shipping. So for the low price of $931, you could buy the snare that I was embarrassed of. Wish I had it now. That whole kit would probably be worth three or four grand. It's, it's like vintage, super cool. Like I wish that I had that drum and I could let my sons play that. I was so embarrassed of this drum that was actually awesome and that is worth a lot of money now. Friends, sometimes you don't know the value of what you have. If you are feeling the weight of financial anxiety right now, to the extent that you're questioning your own worth, and if you have what it takes to interview and land a job and, and do better in life and get beyond this, this rat race of, of financial anxiety that you feel, you don't realize the value of what you have. Your personality, your unique gift set and skill set, your experiences, you have more to offer a company than what you think. You have more to offer your family than what you think. You have more to offer society than what you think. Like me in the fourth grade, you don't realize the value of what you have. Jesus says God cares for you. God knows what you need before you ask. And you are not alone. And isn't life more than food and clothing? and material possessions, you are worth infinitely more than any of the materialistic trappings that we use to judge success. 
you don't realize the value of what you have. And if you don't feel financial anxiety right now because you're doing well, you don't realize the value of what you have either because now you have the power to decide that y'all can seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And we can create the kind of society where 75% of Americans don't have to suffer the way that we are right now. We don't even know what the next few months hold. Y'all can seek God's leadership and doing what is right by everybody. And we won't have to live with financial anxiety. I invite you to pray with me. For those of us who are feeling financial anxiety and there's a stress level that's just always there, God, we, we pray that you would set us free from this Instagram culture where we're always comparing ourselves to other people and, and, and we fool each other into thinking that we don't have financial struggles. The truth is most of us don't have an adequate savings or retirement. We can't give the way that we would like. And we're in this, this hamster wheel of chasing after things that we think we need. Jesus, your teaching frees us from that. We are worth more than that. We are, we are created for more than financial anxiety. Some of us are feeling that anxiety to the extent that we're questioning, is it even worth it anymore? Some of us are feeling so depressed, so anxious, that we think about checking out from time to time. God, I pray right now in, in some amazing way that you would speak hope and relief into the lives of those of us who are feeling that kind of anxiety and depression. I would be glad to refer you to a counselor. And I know you feel trapped. Well, I can't afford that. Well, there are ways. You were meant for more than living under that kind of weight and anxiety and depression. And you have the power. You can take personal steps. You have, you have far more than you think you do. You are far more valuable than you think. And for those of us who aren't really feeling financial anxiety right now, because we're doing okay, the teaching of Jesus might even be more challenging to us than it is to everybody else. You've been given a gift. And now we have Jesus looking at us in the eyes and telling us, instructing us, the truth is, commanding us to seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness, to live according to God's guidance, to decide that we want to order society in such a way that we do what is right by everybody. That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And we have the invitation and the challenge to bring God's kingdom here so that we don't have to live, as a people, we don't have to live in growing inequality and financial anxiety. And how much joy could we experience if we weren't just comfortable, because we'll still be comfortable financially, but that we could see that because of what we did, other people are too. 
and like giving to the, to the, the, the Christmas in July food drive, that's just the first step. But ordering society in such a way, changing the political will to where so many people don't have to be caught in this growing inequality and feel financial anxiety. We could have the joy of changing things to live by your guidance and to create a society where we do what is right by everybody. God, we thank you that we have that privilege. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen.